Well, hello there. Welcome to Downtown the Podcast. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell, coming to you from Bangor, Maine, America. Episode four of our podcast. And this week, uh, we go to space and to the depths of the ocean with our two guests, astronaut Terry Virts and author Rachel Slade, who will talk about her book, Into the Raging Sea on the Sinking of the El Faro. Our downtown podcast brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine, and by our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our first guest on the program has uh, journeyed into space. He uh, piloted the space shuttle, flew on the Soyuz, and was the commander of the International Space Station. He's also written a book filled with beautiful photographs of his time in space that offered him a unique perspective on life on Earth. Terry Virts joining us here on Downtown, the podcast. How did your time in space, and you've logged, uh, what, over 200 days in space, how did the time up there impact your view of the world down here? You know, that's, um, I do a lot of speaking now about that very subject. Uh, when, you, when you get to see Earth for the first time, it's really an emotional experience. I had spent my whole life reading books about space and, um, you know, watching the IMAX movies, and I kind of thought I was ready for it. But the first time that you see your planet, down there and you're not on it it's really kind of an amazing experience we had um, robert curson on last week and he's written the, the wonderful book rocket men on apollo 8 and and talking about the, the experiences that, that frank borman and jim lovell and bill andrews had uh, seeing earth from coming around from the dark side of the moon for the first time and i i have to think that, that there's no way that can't change a person when you see um the fragility of it all and and uh, you know it bears repeating that we are all alone here as a species <laughs> on this little blue marble floating around in space. Yeah, it's it's funny. I uh, kids, I'll always ask, "What's your favorite planet?" And you know, Jupiter's cool because it's big, and Saturn has rings, and Mars. Hopefully, we'll be sending people there eventually. Um, but having flown in space and, and seen those from at least from space, um, Earth is my favorite planet. It's it's the only one we've got, and it's really a beautiful planet. The IMAX movie. Uh, that I helped make is called Beautiful Planet, um, and it's very well named. It's a very appropriate name for a movie. Well, the photographs in the book are so stunning, so very beautiful. What's what's the key to being a successful space photographer? You know, I think that is a great question. I don't know that anybody's asked me that before. I think the key to being any photographer in space or with your kids or in nature is just being willing to get your eyes up and look around and see things. Um, there's so many great images and views uh, that you can capture if you just take a minute to look around and see it and, you know, try and imagine, hey, this would make a good picture and, and take it. And then, as they say, film is cheap, especially nowadays that it's digital. And so you just have to take shots and take shots. I ended up taking over 300,000 still images. There's some poor guy at NASA whose job it was to count that. And so when I got back, I think they were really happy that I had landed because <laughs> Um, I took a lot of pictures, but uh, you know, if you got to take that many just to get a few good ones. Mentioned that you flew on Soyuz. You were commander of the International Space Station. So it, it, I ask this, do scientists have the market cornered on international cooperation? <laughs> well, what a world we live in nowadays. Things it's uh, in so many ways that there hasn't been a lot of international cooperation, but in space, it's a very different story. In fact, um, 
from my time as commander, I think the thing I was most proud about was the way that we worked together with the Russians. I mean, I was in space with three cosmonauts and an Italian uh, astronaut and an American. So, and we worked together as one crew. One of my goals as commander was to still be friends when it was all over. And we're, <laughs> we're all still friends. We still email each other and see each other when we can. And um, uh, during all of this, you know, things have been pretty bad between the U.S. and Russia for years now. And I, I trained and flew right in the middle of that. And uh, despite those problems, we were interested in space in things like staying alive. You know, when you're in outer space, <laughs> that's not easy to do. So we didn't have time for all the political shenanigans that were happening down here on the planet. We were just, we were happy to, you know, make it through the day and, and get the mission done. We're talking with astronaut Terry Verts here on Downtown. I mentioned uh, the number of days you've spent in space. What's the biggest challenge in acclimating to not only being in space, but being in, in fairly confined quarters? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. There's the physiological things, um, and they generally work themselves out after a few days or a week or two. Uh, but the psychological is a much bigger thing. Um, but as far as your body goes, everybody has some type of headache or stuffiness. All the fluid goes from your legs and kind of floats up into your head, so you get a puffy head. Um, I had a really bad headache until my third day in space. And it's you feel dizzy. It's, like, hard to move your head very fast. And for me... On the morning of my third day, it was like a light switch went off, and all of a sudden I felt great, and I never again had any problems. But the first two days, um, I had a pretty bad headache. A lot of people have back pain because you actually stretch out and grow a few inches usually. Um, so there's all these kind of aches and pains that you get with um, going into space. And then after a few days or sometimes a week or two, those go away, and you're adapted. And I, I was a spaceman. I mean, it was like all of a sudden I, I felt completely at home and natural in that very alien environment. Um, but the psychological aspect of being um, not on your planet, you know, gone from your friends mm. and family, and you're there with your crewmates and there's no one else. Like there was no one else coming, at least not for a few months. Um, so that's for us. And when I was commander on Expedition 43, uh, we had a great crew and we got along, but um, that I think is the biggest challenge. What did you make of the news and were you surprised by the news uh, about uh, Scott and Mark Kelly and the fact that after all that time in space, now these two twins uh, don't have the same DNA? <laughs> you know what? That was actually, that, that reporting was not exactly accurate. There were some tweets and reports that didn't come out. And And again, I'm a fighter pilot. I'm not a biologist, but there's a thing called gene expression. So their gene expression changed by 7%. But apparently that can happen if, like, I, I was just golfing this morning. And you have, if you have a bad round of golf and you're stressed out, your gene expression changes. Or, you know, if you're running or whatever, day-to-day -day life can change that. Their actual DNA, it's a great question. I asked this when I got back because radiation-induced DNA change um, is a big deal. Uh, the cancer risk to astronauts is the is the biggest risk for long term spaceflight, um, and NASA doesn't study that at all. We, they don't look at all uh, between how your DNA changes before and after space. I think they did a short term one of a kind study on Scott Kelly uh, for one type of DNA, but they don't do generic DNA changes on astronauts, and that surprised me. I hope that's something that we start to do because it's an important issue. Uh, but you Mark and Scott. 
So to, to be clear, Market Scott still has the same DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, you mentioned uh, you grew up reading about space and following space, and I'm a little bit older than you, but I, I was a, a huge space fan as a kid. I, I could have, for many years, told you every single crew in the, the Gemini and the Apollo uh, launches through the years. It's interesting to me, uh, talking last week about Apollo 8, that crew in their 80s and 90s still alive, and, and so many of these early astronauts have lived well into their 80s and 90s. Maybe Tom Wolfe was right about you guys having the right stuff. <laughs> well, one of the things about being an astronaut, um, it's it's a pretty highly selected group. Like, you, you can't become an astronaut without going through lots and lots of medical tests. So if you have, you know, any one of a number of medical conditions, you, you just won't get picked. So once you get to be an astronaut, the odds of living a long time are pretty good. Um, there, there are the effects of spaceflight, but, you know, the normal things that kind of kill you off, um, astronauts are mostly selected out of that population. So yeah, guys, you know, Buzz and Charlie Duke is in great shape and Harrison Schmidt's in great shape. And, um, a lot of these guys are, you know, there's, there's not that many of them left, but they're living well and lots of energy. It's impressive. Back here on Earth, uh, you had a pretty amazing experience recently. Can you talk about your time in Antarctica? Oh, God, that was amazing. Um, so there's a, uh, I had a chance to go down. I was kind of like the guest speaker on this tour. Uh, they have a base camp near the ocean. It's actually right near a Russian and Indian uh, government science camps. Uh, there's a company called White Desert that does these tours. So we flew down from South Africa which, by, uh, by the way, South Africa is an amazing experience by itself. And uh, we went around. We were supposed to go see emperor penguins, but the weather down there didn't cooperate. And you basically, you're at the, you're at the mercy of Mother Nature when you're in Antarctica. Um, but I got to go all the way to the South Pole, to the Amundsen-Scott Research Center there. The Americans have this humongous, gigantic facility right at the South Pole. And uh, it was incredible. It's, I've never seen any landscape like that. There's this place called Queen Maud Land, um, and the mountains there were not like any mountains I've ever seen. It was really, it, it was almost like an alien landscape there in Antarctica. We're talking with Terry Virts. His a wonderful book is entitled View from Above, An Astronaut Photographs the World. Uh, we've got a launch coming up on Saturday uh, to Mars, the InSight lander. What should be the future of our space program, Terry, and especially in terms of manned space flight? Where do we go from here? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually written some articles about that. And I think the, you know, the 21st century destination is Mars. Um, there's so many interesting things about the planet. It's the most Earth-like place in the solar system. And, you know, the potential for people to live there over the long term is, high, is higher there than anywhere else that we're aware of. Uh, you can actually, if you have a small telescope, um, during the right season, you can see water on Mars. The polar ice caps are visible in just a, a small telescope. So there's a lot of reasons to go to Mars. It's a really difficult problem to, to get there, though. The movie The Martian was great. The science in it was really interesting and, and spot on. But the big thing about the movie was this giant Mars ship kind of showed up out of nowhere and took the crew there and then brought them back. And that that's a minor detail. Is building that, building that Mars ship is is what the the hard challenge is. Um, and so I think we I think we ought to be using the moon as a testing ground. There's some technologies that you need to get to Mars that um, I think we should start developing. 
Um, one of them is nuclear power. You need you need that for to generate the electricity for people, um, either on the moon or on Mars or wherever. If you're going to stay for any length of time, you need that. And the other thing is if you had nuclear power that could generate megawatts of electricity, you could have an electric propulsion system that could get you to Mars and back in less than a year. And if you use a normal rocket, the kind that we use, you know, the, a chemical rocket that we've been using for the last 50 years, um, the trip actually takes three years because it's so slow. You have to wait for Earth and Mars to kind of go around the sun and line up again before you come home. So you can take the length of a trip from three years down to one year if you have that electric propulsion. So I think we should be developing those technologies now to eventually send us back to Mars, or not back to Mars, to Mars for the first time as people. And Terry, what can we learn by having actual human beings in space that uh, robots, that lunar rovers, that Martian landers can't teach us? Yeah, so the rovers are great, by the way, and I love science and I love robotic exploration and I love following and seeing what they discover. Um, But of course, humans are way better. The Spirit and Opportunity rovers have some good friends that were some of the main scientists on that program. And they had been there for like a decade and they had traveled a total, I forgot the number, one kilometer or maybe a few kilometers. Basically, one human EVA or one human spacewalk could could have covered the distance that it took these little guys a decade to do now the difference is they're way cheaper and they were able to do it so there's there's an advantage there but people are just adaptable they're flexible they see things they can learn better and one of the goals of exploration is to learn about the place we're going but another goal is to be able to live there ourselves and unless you send people there you're not actually living there so if we want to you know, eventually settle space and move to other planets and other solar systems. Uh, We have to do that with people. You can't do that with robots. You can follow Terry Virts on Twitter at Astro Terry. He's got a terrific website with a great blog at terryvirts.com. The book is View from Above, an astronaut photographs the world. Uh, Terry, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for making time for us today. Great talking to you guys. Thanks. Astronaut Terry Virts here on Downtown the Podcast. Episode 4. It was less than three years ago the container ship El Faro sunk. 33 mariners lost their lives in that. Rachel Slade has written all about it, and we'll talk with her about her wonderful new book, Into the Raging Sea, after this word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends teamed up. Their mission, create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with all the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combined their love of beer, science, and their German heritage to create truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, stouts, porters, any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Be sure and ask for beers from Nice, that's G-N-E-I-S-S, at your favorite restaurant or bar. 
while in Maine, visit the Tasting Room in Limerick, open Fridays 2 to 7, Saturdays 12 to 6, and check out the website at nicebeer.com to learn more. Work hard, play hard, be nice. German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Author Rachel Slade has got a brand new book out. It's called Into the Raging Sea. And it's uh, all about what happened to the members, the crew of the Alfaro back in 2015. 33 mariners lost their lives. And it's a complicated story that uh, Rachel has uh, made easy for uh, even us landlubbers to understand. But a fascinating tale made even more so because much of the book includes the words of the crew members. She talked with us about uh, putting this book together, the research involved, and the uh, compelling, unforgettable story of the Alfaro. Here's author Rachel Slade on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Britt. What uh, drew you to the story of the Alfaro? Well, I really, really have been drawn to this sea since I was a little girl. I was born in Baltimore, raised in Philadelphia, lived in New York, now I'm in Boston. These are all port cities. And so I've always wanted to connect to the ocean in some way. And when I read about the sinking of Alfaro, of course, like everybody, I wanted to know what happened? How could we lose a modern ship in this day and age? Um, but it also gave me an opportunity to connect with this incredible industry, the shipping industry in America. Well, you've really done a remarkable job of weaving the story together. And, and one of the things that really uh, brings the story to life are the voices uh, of those people who were lost on the ship. Thanks to those black box recordings, how invaluable were they to you in telling this tale? Unbelievable. So first I want to say that this is the longest black box recording in history. It was 26 hours of tape captured, audio captured on the bridge of that ship, leading up to the very final moments of the ship. But, you know, I started looking at this story before they recovered the black box. And so already I was drawn in by the people who are on the ship and, and the families who agreed to talk to me. So already I felt like I was starting to make a connection with those folks. But then when we got that transcript, that 500-page transcript, wow, I just felt like I was on the ship. It was incredible. Well, and that's the feeling that you get as a reader as well. And, and there are there are certainly dramatic moments, but to me, maybe what's most chilling are those mundane conversations that take place on the ship when you know how it's all going to end. Rich, that is such a good point. That's exactly right, because those are the moments when you realize that you might not have done anything different. Like, those are the moments when you can imagine your coworkers and friends being in that very same position and not being able to find their way out of it and just hoping for the best. Really, that's such a perceptive thing to say. There were so many things working against the Alfaro uh, other than Joaquin, and it starts perhaps with the ship itself, which was quite outdated at the time of it uh, taking off. Was it a, a 1974 ship? That's correct, and it was actually designed in the 60s. So it's important to remember not just that this ship was, in order to keep it operational, they actually had to mill their own parts, create their own parts, and they also, you know, pulled parts off the scrap ship. But it's important to remember that the way that ship was built, the way it was designed, 
would never have been built today. We have changed our standards. We've changed our regulations. We could not have built that ship the way it was built today. Also, the parent company, a tote, was at the very least ill-prepared communication system. Navigation systems certainly were not what they should have been. I mean, that is definitely part of the story. And as all working men and women in America know, sometimes your company is looking out for you and sometimes it's not. And in this case, there were many moments when, certainly when I was doing my research, when I felt that the shipping company could have done more to help out their mariners, certainly, you know, upgrading the systems, but very simply just monitoring the ship. They were not tracking it. There was there was nobody on land that was tracking that ship and nobody on land that was tracking that storm from from the shipping end of things. Although I do have to mention that there was a mariner, a an off duty mariner Charlie Baird, he was the second mate of mm. El Faro, and he was in South Portland. He was watching that storm develop, and he did reach out to Captain Davidson before they left Jacksonville. We're talking with Rachel Slade, the author of Into the Raging Sea. You mentioned Captain Davidson, and there's certainly lots of questions about uh, his experience, his ability to handle this situation. And and while he's certainly uh, one of the culprits uh, in this story, in many ways it's also maritime practice and regulation as well, and procedures that uh, that seem outdated given the technology that's available in so many walks of life. That's true. I mean, you know, it's easy to pin all of this on Captain Davidson. And, you know, if you if you give a quick summary of what happened, it seems like it's all his fault, which is completely unfair. He's as much a victim of circumstance as all of us. I think that he was very concerned about his job security. He had, um, like all of us who work for a living, he had high expenses. And so he was I think, very distracted by the pressures being put on him by the shipping company to get those goods through and to deliver things on time. There are so many wonderful characters in this story. I, I was uh, constantly drawn to uh, Danielle Randolph, the second mate. She's such a sympathetic character. Did you find yourself in the telling of, of the story getting close to some of these people? I mean, I, I adore Danielle. She was the second mate. She's from Rockland. Um, she was the, one of two women on the ship, but the only office, female officer on that ship. And yes, absolutely, I was really moved by her plight. She actually plotted a course that would have steered the ship to safety at 2 in the morning, I believe. And, um, you know, it, it's not easy being a woman in a man's field, but it's also just not easy being a second mate. You know, this is a very hierarchical society, and... Um, she tried to convince the captain to change course, but she could not. But yes, many terrific, compelling characters. I mean, remember sailors, they're they're storytellers. And when you talked about kind of the the informal banter that we caught on tape, I mean, hearing them tell their stories is just wonderful and moving, but also terrifying. I thought it was also fascinating to read of the, the search and rescue effort uh, undertaken by the Coast Guard, uh, trying so hard more than anything else to, to help the families get some closure. And that's I'm sure that's made it even tougher on the families of the 33 who went down. When you don't have a body, it's extremely difficult to have closure. 
And Deb Roberts is up there in Jay, Maine. Probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with her because she has taken her grief and turned it into action. She's working very hard to advocate for mariners out on the water now. Her son actually, I think, just is about to graduate from Maine Maritime. But yes, it's very, very difficult when you when you've lost somebody, but you never. You never have that closure when you lose somebody at sea. It's true. You talked to so many family members. How important was it for them to to make sure the story was told accurately? Well, that's exactly the thing, and I hope that I did. I mean, how the families feel about this book and the reception to the book is extremely important to me. Um, I think when I reached out to the folks who did agree to talk to me, they understood that what I wanted to do was humanize this tragedy. We could say 33 mariners, but they were 33 lives. They were 33 families. There were children. There were mothers. There were fathers who lost people on board. And so I felt that this book was also a tribute to those incredibly strong families that let their children or their spouses go to sea. They were out of communication, you know, three months sometimes at a time. They let them go, and then they lost them. I thought it was very interesting, too, because you, you have an image in your mind of of sailors, mariners, and who they are today, but uh, there is no one description because you have people on the Alfaro of so many different backgrounds, levels of education, job descriptions. It really is a cross-section. You know, that's what's so interesting about American shipping and actually global shipping is that especially El Faro, I found it's really a microcosm of American society. You're absolutely right. People of all different educational levels, of all different you know, socioeconomic levels, and from all up and down the East Coast. And they're all on this ship, which is out to sea, and so they only have each other. And it's just a really interesting society when, when you get on a working ship. It seems hard to believe with all the technology that we have that a tragedy of this magnitude could happen. But the reality is that there are financial constraints, not just on companies and shipping companies, but on the government, on the National Transportation Safety Board as well. What have we learned from the sinking of the Alfaro that might lessen the chance of something like this happening again? Well, so the U.S. government, the federal government, spent millions of dollars first locating the ship because we could not find it 15,000 feet on the ocean floor. We had to actually first locate that ship. And then we had to recover the black box, which took more time. There was a two-year investigation, as you mentioned, jointly run by the, the National Transportation Safety Board and the Coast Guard. Out of those uh, investigations and hearings came a series of recommendations. As you know, the wheels of... of Law turns slow in America. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. But it takes a long time for things to evolve and change in shipping. What I hope is that with this story, mariners and, and regulators and anybody involved with shipping can, can transform their thinking just a little bit to prevent something like this from happening again. Rachel, you did a remarkable job in this. And, and I don't know that I, I can say this about many books of evoking not just the feel, but the sound, I, I was struck by the sound that you're able to tell us about in words from the sound of the storm to that awful sound of the ship hitting the bottom of the ocean. And it really helped put us there and get some kind of a feel for what it must have been like. 
Well, I, I do love being on the water. I, I, I love sailing and, you know, I've been in storms. I actually took a container ship from Italy to Baltimore, Maryland last summer. So I know ships a little bit. I've, I've worked really hard to try to understand what it's like, of course, to be on a ship, but even in a storm. Now, I, I did my best. There are some incredible YouTube videos as well of, of ships in storms. Some of them I found out later um, actually cracked in half after the guys filmed those those uh, incredible moments of ships and storms. But thank you very much for the compliment. I mean, I did work very hard to to try to be true to the Mariners and their experience. Well, and the story, too, that you relate about uh, getting from, uh, is it the pilot boat, the captain boat, up onto the ship, that was harrowing enough right there. Uh, yes, it was. I didn't quite know what I was getting in for there. So also to research the ship, this, this story, I had the privilege of riding uh, piloting boats with Eric Bryson down in Florida. He was the last person on El Faro. He took El Faro from Jacksonville out to sea for her final run. So being able to do that exact run with the very same pilot was a powerful, powerful thing. And yes, I have to say, to board a ship at sea as a pilot, Anybody who doesn't know this, please look it up because the YouTube videos are so harrowing. But this little boat pulls up alongside the ship and a rope ladder comes mm. down. When was the last time you had to climb a rope ladder? And then here, there's nothing below you. If you fall, you fall between the two vessels, you get sucked under, it's over. And plenty of pilots have died that way. Rachel Slade, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Rich, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Author Rachel Slade joining us on Downtown, the podcast, discussing her wonderful book, Into the Raging Sea. As we wrap it up for this week, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell reminding you, Downtown podcast brought to you by Nice Brewing Company. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Cross insurance as well, where security meets strength. We originate from Bangor, Maine. Our daily show can be heard on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3, streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, and also by downloading the WZON app. Next week, singer-songwriter-hitmaker Kim Carnes visits with us and talks about her long career in the music business. We'll see you next time here on Downtown, the podcast.